have a seat. If you guys are here for the first time, uh, know that we're so thankful that you're with us. Um, you know, we, we truly value you. We try value each and every single one of you. You know, last weekend, y'all, it was really special. Uh, we saw 13 baptisms last week. I mean, praise God. Yeah. We had our first two New City kids baptized. It was, uh, it, and it wasn't just 13 baptisms. Um, it was 13 stories and names and faces of people of life transformation. I mean, we have just been praying uh, that we would visibly see the power of God. And last week, uh, God just showed off. It was one of those moments where you think, like, God, what are you doing? It feels like we're just kind of caught up in this whirlwind and we're kind of not really sure what's happening. Because the Spirit of God is moving through our church like a mighty rushing wind, like it says in Acts 2. And I can't help but just think back to our very first Easter as a church in 2020. Like we had all just moved here. We'd sold houses and left jobs and families and friends. Nobody knew anybody ready to charge the hill and plant the church. And here we are in the Tampa area, uh, all cooped up in our homes on Easter, wondering what in the world is happening? Asking that exact same question, God, what are you doing? And as I was standing in that room, in this, in this room, on this stage, preaching to a camera, to an, into an empty room, preaching about the hope of the resurrection two years ago on Easter Sunday, just preaching my heart out to myself, just preaching that the resurrection is true, because you know what? At that moment, two years ago, it was pretty hard to believe it when I was here by myself. And I don't want to overspeak here, but it certainly did feel like the enemy was going on a rampage just across the world. Like people cooped up, confused, afraid, wondering what in the world just happened. It's kind of, kind of like the aftermath of a tragic event, like wars or 9-11 or some sort of global pandemic. And people asking questions, wanting answers, and in despair and confused, um, which I like to suspect is about how the disciples felt after Jesus died on the cross and then his body was gone and missing from the tomb. Yes, we celebrated the resurrection last week because you know we know the entire story, we know how it ends. Yes, Mary Magdalene saw Jesus and she went from weeping to worship, but where we left last week, Mary Magdalene was the only one that had seen Jesus. Everybody else, with where we pick up in John 20 today, everybody else, they weren't rejoicing and worshiping. No, they too were cooped up in their homes afraid because Jesus, the guy that they had been following and believed was the Messiah, he had just died on the cross and his body was gone. Yes, Jesus told his disciples these things would happen, but I think it's fair to say that it didn't quite click. Like Peter and John, they had their famous foot race to the tomb and then they saw Jesus' body missing and it says in verse 10 of John 20, they then went back to their home. And then we saw the whole interaction with Mary Magdalene, and then we picked back up today in verse 19 of John 20. So we're going to read the entire passage and go ahead and uh, read the entire thing up front. This is what it says, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked were the, uh, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the, in the, mark of the nails and place my, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So for the last eight months, we have been referencing just that last verse over and over again. John 20, 31 says, it's just kind of the purpose statement of the book of John. John wrote this book, the book of John, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So this book was written so we would believe in Jesus and have full life in Jesus. And last week we saw a visible picture in 13 baptisms that God's word does what it says it will do. Like we preach and teach here at New City because the word of God is powerful and it changes lives. Like my, like my goal each week is to present to you the word, say what it says, and then just get out of the way and let it do what it does best. And so today we're going to do that as well. Uh, we're going to continue to simply, uh, we're going we're to simply continue from what we picked up last week with the exact same uh, main idea that we had from last week, and it's this, the resurrection changes everything. And this is just part two. You know, last week we looked at the story of the resurrection, we looked at the logic of the resurrection, and then lastly we looked at the implications of the resurrection. And this week, we're basically just going to continue our time today in that third point from last week with more, just more implications of the resurrection. We'll have five implications from our text that, we're gonna, that I'll give to you as I go. And so in light of the resurrection, like if all of this is really real and true, if Jesus truly rose from the dead as the Son of God, which from last week, we, uh, we can confidently say, yes, this is absolutely true. But if this is true, then what happens? Because it's either true or it's not. And if it's true, our lives, they cannot be the same. And a lot of that, in a lot of ways, what we're going to see today is why, we, why our church even exists. Like we didn't start this church so we could live in Florida, move away from friends and family, be nice, polite people with a fresh new start. No, like our church exists because the resurrection is true. Our, yeah, our church exists because Jesus is alive and has given us a mission and a purpose. And at the end of our time, I'm going to present like a crazy big vision for what we can believe can happen because the resurrection is true, because Jesus is alive and active. I mean, who would have ever thought that a global movement that would span over 2,000 years and radically change lives would happen based off of a group of scared, doubting disciples like we see today? Like, this only happens if Jesus is alive. And so all we're going uh, to do, uh, so we're, we're all going to just kind of carry the baton and saying that he is alive and still changing lives today, and the movement today still exists. And so this is how we're going to handle our text today. You know, I'm gonna, it's going to be a little different than how we normally do. Normally we go line by line in order. But today we're going to start, start at the end, 
and kind of work our way backwards in some ways, seeing how the text really builds on itself. Um, but before we do, that, do this, I, I want to remind you of what we just read about a minute or two ago. So if you remember the disciples, they were all locked up. They were in their houses. They were afraid. They were fearful. And then Jesus walks into the house um, that was locked, may I remind you, and then says, peace be with you. And I'm just pointing out here that if I were in that room, I would be a little freaked out. Uh, because if a guy just walked into our house that had been locked, uh, that seems like a good way just to get knocked out. Which is why Jesus showed them his nail-pierced hands and his side where he was pierced because he wanted uh, to put them at ease. And then he said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And then he breathes on them, empowering them with the Holy Spirit. And then as the story continues, we see that a guy named Thomas, he wasn't there. And so Jesus showed himself again to Thomas. He showed him his hands in his uh, in his, he showed the, the pierced, his nail-pierced hands in his side eight days later. And so we're going to jump into that last part with Thomas first in just a second. But I do want to point out uh, that from an outside, outsider looking in at all of this, um, this doesn't seem like something that would just put people at peace. I mean, just think about this. Like, it, Jesus walks in and says, peace be with you. It's kind of like, hey, check this out. I just got sentenced to death as a, a criminal, uh, nailed to a cross and stabbed with a spear. And here I am now in your house that you locked up. And now I'm breathing on you, um, talking about forgiveness uh, and telling you to be at peace. I mean, it seems a little bit like a crazy movie. And I think we have to agree, if the resurrection is not true, this whole situation is just a little creepy. I mean, the truthfulness of the resurrection makes the biggest difference in this story. And so if it's not true, this is just insanely weird. But if it is true, the whole thing is incredibly powerful and faith-filling. And as we know, after Jesus left, after 40 days on earth, these people in this room, they were willing to give up their entire life and die for this. For them, uh, after it was all said and done, this filled them with zeal and faith. One of my hopes for today, coming off of the heels of last week, seeing God do, do something incredibly special, I hope that after today, we as a church will be filled with faith and zeal just like the disciples. Because New City, God is living and active. He is not dead. Like, He is not in the grave. Jesus is alive and working among us. The movement of God does not stop. It continues on and it keeps going. And so in light of the resurrection, like I said, there are five truths I just want to point out from our passage. So the first truth comes from the back half of our text with Jesus speaking to Thomas, which leads us to number one, the resurrection empowers us to believe. We've seen this over and over again throughout the book of John. Believe or belief or some form of the verb has come up over a hundred times in this book. And as we saw last week, without the resurrection, uh, there's nothing for us to believe in because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's just another dead man. And could not be the son of God. Like Jesus had to die on the cross to take our sins. And he had to rise from the dead to confirm that it was true. And to also make a way for the spirit of God to come into us and open up our eyes to see and believe. And we see this firsthand with Thomas. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
So like we've said, Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus came in, but now he's here. And the disciples say to Thomas, who, by the way, is often called Doubting Thomas, they say to him, we've seen the Lord, and he doubts it and says, I want to see the marks in his hands inside, just like Jesus showed the others. And Thomas, he got stuck with the name um, Doubting Thomas for the rest of history because of this interaction, Uh, and I personally don't think it's fair. I think uh, realist Thomas or rational Thomas is a little bit more fair because all the other guys, they had already already seen Jesus' hands inside. And Thomas, he watched Jesus die. I mean, it seems like a pretty rational and logical and realistic thing to say, I'd like to see his hands inside also. Like every person that believed him at first, they saw him firsthand. They saw his hands in his side. Jesus showed himself to over 500 people. And the reason I think we we need to give Thomas a little bit of grace for wanting proof is because, well, that's exactly what Jesus did for him. Because as the story continues in verse 26, we see that Jesus came to Thomas eight days later while he and all the disciples were still locked up in their house. And Jesus walks up to Thomas and shows him exactly what Thomas requested. He took Thomas's hands and said, touch my nail pierced hands. Like, place your hand on my pierced side. And he says to him, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says right after that, my Lord and my God. New City, Thomas just needed a little help believing. And he asked for more evidence. And then Jesus himself came up and gave him exactly what he asked for, and then he believed. And then after that, Thomas didn't doubt, he believed. Seeing the proof of the resurrection in Jesus himself, it empowered Thomas to believe. And last week we looked at a little bit of the proof of the resurrection. And you know, I love this stuff. Apologetics is so fun to me because we have so much proof that our faith is real and true. I mean, we want people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross and rose from the dead and that by trusting in Jesus, we can, our sins are forgiven and that we can have full life in his name. Like church, we have really good news. We believe this and we want others to believe this and sometimes people believe instantly and oftentimes people just need a little extra help believing. In New City, we need to do this for people. We need to slowly and patiently show people the truthfulness of Jesus in the cross and the resurrection. But I also want to say this because I think if we're honest, Most of us can feel like Thomas at times, just facing doubts and uncertainties about uh, various different things, maybe wondering at times, is all this even true? Expressing doubts. And the Lord this week just kind of struck me with how Jesus responded to Thomas in his doubts and in his unbelief. Jesus didn't shun him. Jesus didn't reprimand him. He didn't say, what's wrong with you? He didn't snicker at him and say, you fool, why don't you believe? No, what did Jesus do? He met Thomas in his doubts, and he lovingly showed himself to him. Like, he just helped him believe. Which leads me to say, if you experience doubts, I want you to know that we can bring our doubts to Jesus. Like, he can handle them. Jesus doesn't shun us in our doubts. No, he meets us in our doubts. If we experience doubt, we can talk about it and trust that God will meet us in it. And we can trust, just like Thomas, uh, God doesn't want to leave us there. No, he wants to move us to faith. But if we keep our doubts hidden and in the dark, there's, that's where the enemy feeds lies to our doubts. 
Like we need to get our doubts into the light and let our brothers and sisters in Christ lovingly speak truth to us in them. So again, number one, the resurrection empowers belief. And then next we see number two, the resurrection empowers forgiveness. So if the resurrection is true, we are forgiven by God and we're also empowered to forgive others. You know, a couple weeks ago, I watched the TV series Les Mis, not the dramatic singing one. Um, But throughout the entire story, the main character, Jean Valjean, he was characterized as a criminal. He spent 19 years in jail for stealing a loaf of bread. And the police officer, as well as others um, in society, they continue to characterize him as a criminal, even after he's out of jail. And so what's interesting is that although he was seen as a criminal by the police officer Javert, Throughout the entire story, Jean Valjean is actually portrayed as a very gracious, kind, and forgiving man. And so while the police officer Javert was seen as rigid and joyless and hungry for justice, spending his entire life chasing Jean Valjean for some, uh, for some more petty things after his release, and so although this police officer Javert wasn't in prison, I think it's fair to say he was in his own metaphorical prison cell of unforgiveness. Where Jean Valjean spent time in prison, he came out offering much forgiveness to everyone. Jean Valjean understood forgiveness, so he, in turn, he forgave others. Where Javert, the police officer, he lived a life in the prison cell of unforgiveness, and it stole his joy and his life. And so what we see today is that forgiving both, that forgiveness, both from God and also to others, it is a gift that is empowered by the resurrection. Like there is something incredibly freeing and empowering knowing that we are forgiven both by God and by others. And I think we can agree that there are people all over the world that have everything this world has to offer, but yet they're left in the prison cell of unforgiveness. This prison cell of unforgiveness, it's seen um, in one of two ways. Either we ourselves struggle to accept forgiveness, like we don't know where to find it, Or, number two, we struggle to forgive others. And both are metaphorical prison selves that God wants to free us from. And I want to show you this as we continue to work backwards in our text. Look look at verse 23. This is what it says. It says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so I just want to acknowledge this is a really difficult verse. Because it seems like it's saying... That the forgiveness of a person's sins are up to us to forgive them. And I, I, don't, I do want to say that is not what it's saying. Like we have to always interpret that which is unclear through that which is abundantly clear. And the scriptures are abundantly clear that the forgiveness of sins comes only through believing in Jesus. And what most scholars say about this verse is that the verb tense of forgiveness in the original language indicates that it's a completed past with an ongoing action in the future, uh, while also remembering it's connected to the Great Commission back in verse 21. Now I get this may seem like a bunch of grammar garble, but let me help make a little bit more sense to this. Because what he's saying is that those who have been forgiven by Jesus can offer the same forgiveness through Jesus to others. So if we withhold the forgiveness that is found in Jesus, forgiveness for others, and for others, it can't be found. And so maybe this will be more clear. We can say it this way. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. 
and then tell others where the source of forgiveness is found. Because New City, here's the deal. People all around us are in a prison cell of unforgiveness, and it may even be us. And like we said, this prison cell of unforgiveness, it can come in one of two forms. The first prison cell of unforgiveness is found in believing that you are in shackles and chains because of something that has happened in the past and thinking that you can't get rid of it. Kind of like Jean Valjean felt believing to be a criminal, a criminal most of his life and not being able to get rid of that label as a criminal. And y'all, I'm going to preach this until I am blue in the face every week. We cannot forget that there is forgiveness that is found at the cross. And it is available to every single person. No matter the crime, no matter the act, no matter what it is, the good news of the gospel is that by believing in Jesus, we are 100% totally forgiven and deemed totally free, like with a new identity as a child of God, with a 100% clean slate. Like that is the beautiful, simple gospel. We believe in Jesus, and Jesus makes us a new creation. And God looks at us and says, we're forgiven. We're no longer in the prison cell of unforgiveness. We're free. We have a brand new identity. And yes, it's that easy, and yes, it's that good. That's what the cross bought for us, and the resurrection secured for us. And you know what? The same resurrection power that offers forgiveness to us is the same resurrection power that enables us to also forgive others. Because yes, it's one thing to know we've been forgiven for the sins we've done, But like I said, the other prison cell of unforgiveness is the unforgiveness that we may hold in our own heart for the wrong that others have done to us. And church, this prison cell of unforgiveness is way more subtle. But it's still a prison cell. Just like the police officers subvert in Les Mis, it will steal our life and our joy in New City. This one is really hard especially when we've been wronged by a close friend or family member or a spouse or someone that we love and trust. But listen, keeping and harboring, harboring unforgiveness in our hearts, it is a dangerous thing. It's a prison cell that Jesus wants to free us from. So I don't know where you are. I don't know how you came in. I don't know what unforgiveness you may have in your heart, but I know this. We cannot keep it there because it will steal our joy. Now hear me on this. I know that every situation is different and every situation requires wisdom and discernment and there's different uh, layers of safety and sensitivity. And so I'm not gonna make a blanket statement and say that every person should should pursue full reconciliation in every situation. That's where the church steps in and helps to discern and counsel. But But what I can say is that unforgiveness in our hearts at some level is keeping us in chains and is likely stealing our life and joy. And so, New City, if the resurrection is true, if Jesus is alive and active, Jesus wants to search out our hearts and find any unforgiveness, and he wants to help us find forgiveness in our hearts, and he wants to release us out of that prison cell. And the way in which we do that is by first looking in the mirror and remembering what Jesus did for us. I mean, every day, think about this, every day we each sin against God. Like we almost like spit in his face with our sin, in his face. And yet every day, because of the gospel, he says to us, in spite of that, I love you. <laughs> Come to me anyways. Come to me. 
And when we regularly remember what God has done for us, he calls us, empowered by the resurrection, to put the gospel on display to others and forgive them just as Christ has forgiven us. New City, we are praying fervently for a revival in our city. We see God save, and just seeing God save people left and right. And when God revives our city, he also revives our hearts and souls, which includes uh, freeing us from the prison cell of unforgiveness. So who is it that you need to forgive this week? Who is it that you may need to forgive again and again and again and again? Maybe you need to talk with them, maybe you don't. I don't know, that's where counsel, wise counsel comes into play. But I know this, those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. And if the resurrection is true, forgiving others is one of the many things God does in our hearts. And you know how this happens? Because when God enters into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, he starts to change us. Again, we're, we're kind of reverse engineering our passage today. We just talked about verse 23. Now look at verse 22. This is what it says. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I think this verse seems like a, it could be a tic-tac commercial, but it's kind of odd. Breathe, Jesus is kind of breathing on people. You know, I've been wondering all week what this moment would have been like like, did he breathe a deep, heavy breath and breathe on, on them all at once? Or did he go around breathing on them one by one, just kind of breathing on their faces? Um, I don't know. We don't know. Maybe it wasn't weird to them. I, it just says he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. But I do want to make, what I do want to make clear, like, we do not do that today. Like, we don't go around breathing on people, telling them to receive the Holy Spirit. We don't have that power. But to be fair... Whenever the Holy Spirit is talked about, it's typically talked about like a wind or air that can't be seen. And so John, writing, he breathed on them to give them the Holy Spirit. It goes in line with that idea. So the Holy Spirit is always working and moving, but it's like a wind. You can't always see it. You just see its effects. And so we've seen the resurrection empowers belief, forgiveness, and now we see number three, the resurrection empowers us with the Holy Spirit. Both Belief and forgiveness are done with the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do those things on our own. Only a God that is alive and living could do those things in us. You know, this, the, the, the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, is often the neglected person of the Trinity. Like, I try really hard to talk about the Holy Spirit every week here at New City. Like, we love talking about God the Father, we talk about Jesus every week, but unfortunately, the Holy Spirit is often neglected in many circles. And I'll, and I'll say this. If we neglect the Holy Spirit and disengage from the Spirit because it seems like some sort of strange mysticism, which let me say that's a false view of the Spirit, but if we disengage from the Holy Spirit, then church, we've lost all of our power. Christianity that doesn't involve the Spirit of God, it is a powerless and it is a lifeless Christianity. New City, we are desperate for the Spirit of God to work in us and through us and among us. And I do not, and you do not, have, have the power to change your own life or anybody else's life. Only the Spirit of God can do that. We need to know the Spirit of God is our helper, and the Holy Spirit is what lives inside of us and changes us. And because the resurrection is true, the, whole, the Spirit is alive and active, and we have access to it. And so if we believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is inside of us producing the fruits of the Spirit and killing sin in our life. Okay, now listen. I'm about to step on some toes. But I want to say this in as much love as I possibly can. Okay. So if we proclaim Christ, 
and yet we're not growing in conviction by the sin in our life and, or just, just don't care, as lovingly as I can say this, you might not be a Christian. Listen, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. And I'm not saying you're not going to mess up. But the evidence of the Spirit of God working in your life is that we are actively seeking to kill sin in our life. Again, we're not trying to make all of us question our salvation. We're, like, we're saved by, believing only, by belief only in Jesus and the cross. Like, not by how much we sin or don't sin, but if we don't address this, like, I really believe I'm not pastoring us well. Like, if we're not actively seeking to put sin to death and growing, it's a process of growing in a hatred for our sin and just don't care about our sin and just kind of apathetic, then as lovingly as I can say this, the Spirit of God may not be in you because that's just what the Spirit does. When the Spirit's in us, we start to love what God loves and we start to hate what God hates. The Bible says, the Bible shows us in Matthew chapter 7, there will be a lot of people that think they're Christians and call out Lord, Lord, but when they get to heaven, Jesus will say, hey, I never knew you. Again, I'm not saying we need to be perfect. <laughs> I'm just saying if the Spirit of God is in our life, then the fruits of the Spirit will start to come out and God will change us. This is just what happens. A growing hatred for our sin is just one evidence that the Spirit of God is in us. Because when the Spirit of God is in our life, God changes our desires and we begin to fight against sin and we want to feast on the Word of God. We want to be around people that encourage us in the truth and God begins to change us. Some things will, grow, uh, will change very quickly and some things will take a lifetime. And I'll be the first to tell you that again, and I, just speaking of myself, it absolutely does not mean we do not sin. We all sin every day. It just means God changes you by the Spirit and we start to grow in hating our sin. But here's what I want to get across. At the end of the day, the Holy Spirit is the power in the Christian life. It's the power that kills sin in us, and it's the power that changes us and helps us believe and forgive. Y'all, I pray often that we would be marked as a Holy Spirit-empowered people, that we would be continuously filled with the Spirit, not walking in the flesh, as the Bible says, but walking in the Spirit. And sometimes we can see the Spirit working like a mighty rushing wind, visibly seeing the power of God on display, almost like we saw last weekend. And sometimes it's just like a slow trickle in the desert. Maybe like it seems two years ago, just in the middle of a COVID lockdown. And just maybe that's where you are right now. Wondering, God, what are you doing? God, are you even working? But please hear me on this. At all times, the Spirit of God is working and moving around us and in us and through us. Sometimes we see it and know it, and sometimes we don't. Now, I pray that last weekend with 13 baptisms, it's just the tip of the iceberg for our church. Y'all, we serve a big God that moves in mighty ways. And if Jesus rose from the grave, and if the Holy Spirit of God is inside of us as a Holy Spirit-empowered people, y'all, I really and truly believe that we will see that happen again and again and again and again. Because the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that dwells inside of us and is working through us and around us. You know, we serve a big God that wants to see people all over the world worship him. And we are committed to do whatever it takes to walk in obedience in his desires to see that happen. If God's desire is to fill heaven with worshipers from around Tampa Bay and to the ends of the earth, which it is, that is his desire, 
And if the Spirit of God is within us, living inside of us, filling us with power, then we can have incredible confidence when Jesus says to us, as he says in verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is the great commission in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, be at peace, God sent me, and because of that, I'm now sending you. Which leads us to number four, the resurrection moves us into mission. New City, if Jesus rose from the dead, we can't stay silent. We must tell the entire world about this news. And guess what? As we just talked about, he's given us the power to do it. Like the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is precisely the reason that we started this church. If the cross and the resurrection is the way to full life and a life of forgiveness and freedom that sustains us and fills us with the Spirit and changes us for our good, then we must tell the whole world about it. Well, there are 50 thousand college students at USF that need to know about the hope of the resurrection right here in our own backyard. We are praying for an army of students next fall to live collectively on mission, which is why we're building up our internship and residency program so that we can strategically invest in student leaders on campus. There are 18,000 high school students within 10 miles of our church that are connected to parents and broken marriages and strained relationships, and these kids and families are searching for help and direction. There are retirement communities literally all around us filled with people that are searching for hope and purpose in the last 10, 20, 30 years of their life. I mean, just dream with me. What would it look like for them to meet Jesus and then become zealous for the mission of God and to help us disciple the next generation in the years to come? Y'all, there are young professionals that are flocking to the Tampa Bay area, searching for a good time and entertainment, but at the end of the day, they are still empty inside. So what would it look like to see them find Jesus and spend the next 40 to 50 years of their life empowered by the Spirit and living zealously for the mission of God in their families and workplaces and all around the world? Church, if the Spirit of God has empowered us, then we can live on mission with purpose and have a big vision with the, for the poor and the orphan and the widow and the unwed mother and the refugee, just like we do here. The crazy day that I dream for for our church, one of the, just the crazy prayers that I have is the day that we can go to an adoption agency and foster care system here in Tampa and say, how many kids need to be adopted in our area? And we can rally our church and all the churches that we're able to help plant in the years to come and say, our people want to adopt them all. And why? Because we're a Holy Spirit-empowered people that want to do crazy things for the Lord. And why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive and living and active. Like, I dream for the day that we have scores of people all over the world that, came, that come to Christ here in Tampa and have been commissioned as missionaries to the most unreached parts of the world where the name of Jesus is not known, seeing whole villages and families baptized in those areas. You know, I pray Psalm 67 all the time for our church. God, would you bless our church so that we can be a blessing to the world, not for our sake, but for your sake, God. I pray for the day that our church can feed and host and house the homeless and the orphan and the refugee in the Tampa Bay area and equip them and help them get back on their feet as evangelists and disciple makers and mentors, zealous for God and his mission, and then to send them back out to others who have stories just like them. And how is all this going to happen? Because we are a Holy Spirit-empowered people that believe the truth of the Bible and live out our faith with depth and authenticity. Like, we actually believe that the Word of God is true and that God is alive and active. 
Like we can pray and dream for the day when we're raising up church planters and pastors and disciple makers and missional strategists and evangelists that are equipped to push back darkness in the darkest corners of the world. We can pray for the day when business owners are leveraging their business and all of their resources to mobilize the mission of God all around the world to help reach those who have never heard the name of Jesus. You know, we can pray for the day when scores and scores of marriages are restored because our people decide to enter into the messiness of life and lavish them with prayer and grace. We can pray for the day with complete confidence that addictions will be overcome and that addicts will be turned into soul winners. The prostitutes will become prayer warriors, that convicts will become church planners, and that absentee moms and dads will become fearless disciple makers in their homes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, how can we have so much confidence in this? Because Jesus rose from the dead and the resurrection is true. Y'all, none of this will happen out of my power. It won't happen out of your power. It will only happen based on the power of God put on full display. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is alive and active and the resurrection is true. New City, I'd rather be crazy, praying for crazy things, believing in the full power of the resurrection, than just bored with our faith, kind of halfway believing it. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about in The Weight of Glory. He talked about as Christians, we have access to a holiday at the sea with the power of God. Like there's a life-changing, extravagant, real source of joy and full life at our disposal at all times in the Christian life. And yet, as C.S. Lewis said, even though we have access to a holiday at the sea, we often settle and choose to play with mud plies in the slums. So I don't know exactly what's going on in each of your lives, but I do know this. God has placed you in the lives of many people, and if you believe in Jesus, God has empowered you by his Spirit. And you have the opportunity to bring good news to them and to walk with them and to love them and to see their lives changed. We often think that crazy faith means selling everything and moving halfway around the world, and maybe that's what God is calling you to do. We're praying that many would do that here. But you know what I know from being a cross-cultural missionary for a season? Crazy faith, actually, oftentimes, it looks way more mundane than ordinary. Most of the time, crazy faith means doing small things like baking cookies, taking them to your neighbor, and believing that that small act could be a beginning of a relationship that could change their life for all of eternity. Like, that's crazy faith. Crazy faith doesn't mean doing crazy things. It often means we believe that God can use small things to make an eternal difference. Crazy faith believes that God could use a bunch of uneducated fishermen that locked themselves up in their house, afraid to spark a global movement that would still be going 2,000 years later. Crazy faith often means hosting a meal, loving people, doing small acts of kindness, and believing that sharing the gospel can radically change a person's life. Crazy faith believes that the resurrection is true, and then in light of that, it reminds us that all of this is not on our shoulders, but it's all in the Lord's hands. It reminds us, as we close out our time, knowing number five, the resurrection, it moves us from fear to peace. You know, if you remember, the disciples were locked up, and they were scared, and they were fearful, and three times in our text, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. The resurrection, it offers peace. You know, one of the greatest benefits, in my opinion, of the resurrection is that we can be at peace. Like our weary souls can find rest. 
the resurrection reminds us that Jesus is fighting for us, and in light of that, our souls can be at rest. Like, we can have peace. Now, all those crazy things we just listed off that we're praying for about the mission of God, we can't do those things. Like, we're just a small little church plant. Like, how in the world can we do all of that? And their answer is, we don't. God does. And you know what we do in the process? We just rest. <laughs> we delight in Jesus. We sit at his feet, we feast on his word, we walk in the spirit, and we get on our faces, and we beg God with incredible peace for God just to accomplish his will. If all those things are not in the Lord's will, we don't want them. We're just going to sit, and we're just going to sit at his feet and obey the Lord and do what he says do and go where he says go. Trusting that all of this is not on our own shoulders, no, it's completely held in Jesus' hands. And so I don't know how you came in today. I don't know uh, the, what craziness you may be experienced, but if the resurrection is true, our souls can find rest today. Like, hear that today. Be at peace. It's all in the Lord's hands. You know, we've just seen a handful of these implications of the resurrection today. Like, we're moved to, me, to peace. We're moved into mission, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit for forgiveness and also in belief. So let's just ask ourselves, are we at peace today? Are we engaging in God's mission? Are we walking in the Spirit? Are we offering forgiveness? And do we believe in Jesus? And how can we accomplish all of these things? <laughs> because Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive and the resurrection is true. Let's pray. God, your word is always so good to us. God, we're thankful for the Spirit of God that it is alive and active and that it pierces our hearts and our souls. God, we're thankful for the Word. We're thankful for all the hearts and souls that are in this room today. God, we pray that we would all be at peace and live on mission, trusting that the whole world is in your hands, including our very lives. God, we can do great things and we can be at peace. We ask for peace today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.